We're gonna have our five minute greeting at the very end, just as a heads up, so you guys know where we're going with this. And um, that's just kind of how we're gonna structure church from now on. We figured it was a great way to do that because having greeting in the middle of the service uh, was a little bit disruptive as far as like the flow. Like you get in a conversation and then you're like, hold on, we gotta get back to our seats. So just at the end, we do a five minute greeting now and it gives you opportunity to grab some, some coffee or whatever it is, and then be able to talk with some people for an extended period of time. If you need to go to lunch and talk more, then that's awesome as well. But just wanted to give you a heads up of what we're doing. We're going through the book of Mark, and so if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, if not, um, there's a digital version. There's some in the digital bulletin. All the notes are in there in the scripture, or if you want to pull out version and do that as well. Options. Um, but we're going through Mark, and we're calling this walk with me, and it's this idea that Jesus invites us to walk with him. And so we look at these stories and begin to see how he walked with his disciples, how he walked along different roads, went into different buildings, um, interacted with different people groups, and what that looked like. Um, one of the big uh, communities we've been discussing is his interaction with the Pharisees lately, which has been pretty interesting. Last week, he was talking about being killed right? So um, Mark points out that the Pharisees were out just for blood. And if you want to go back and listen to that one, it's interesting. Like I just, to think about the fact that a religious community wanted to kill Jesus, a religious community that understood the Ten Commandments, right? Shall not kill, is now trying to kill him. I'm still blown away by that one, but we're going to continue on and, um, and it gets a little better. So now not only is, do they want to kill him, they're going to start calling him Satan, okay? So here, it gets even better this week, uh, hopefully, in your mind. It's my opinion, as I was just sitting with Scripture this week and wrestling with it. Um, but Jesus performs these unbelievably powerful, mind-blowing miracles. And so let's pick up. We're going to read. It's in verse 7, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. And it's kind of a big passage because we wanted to really take the context into consideration so you can begin to see it. So let me journey through it. Uh, starting on verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding around him. So there's just so many people flooding to him, Word has gotten out about who Jesus is. Um, obviously, the Pharisees were angry about that, but everybody's just going, what is with this guy? We got to come hear him. We're like drawn to him so much so that he needs a boat, which I'm kind of excited about as a fisherman. I love boats. So he's like, we need a boat. Let's do this. I think it was just an excuse to go fishing. Um, but then after that, it says, for he uh, healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. So there's been so many healings that people knew if they just go touch him, they could be healed. And whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. This is the first moment where you start to see evil spirits even recognize who he is, and they're like, you're the son of God. They recognize it. So even the devil, even Satan, even evil knows and recognizes it. But he's like, Shh, don't you tell anybody because this will mess with everything, right? Um, so then he goes on, verse 13. We'll talk about it. Jesus went on, up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him 
and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So that's another thing you want to underline when we're talking about these passages here is he's, he's sending them out not just to preach, but to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, and he goes through the list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave names Boanerges, which means son of thunder, which is pretty awesome. You get to be called son of thunder. It's like the ultimate um, WWE kind of thing situation going on. Um, he's like, I'm assembling the team, but these guys, they're the best. Um, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, which the only one that's got a little tagline that says, who betrayed him? Like Mark's pointing out, like, remember, this is the guy who really messed it up really bad out of the 12. So there's 12, but there's really 11 because this guy just, he betrayed him. Um, and then it goes on, he says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. There's that many people. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, which is basically calling him Satan. Uh, it's an Old Testament term for Satan that um, that other like the prophets of Baal used to call what they worshipped as Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So his family comes and says he's out of his mind. Uh, teaches the law. The Pharisees come and they're like, "Yeah, he's Satan for sure," and he's got his twelve that he's called. So he's assembled the dream team, right? And then he comes together and basically his family disowns him and everybody else disowns him. They're like, you're out of your mind. You're doing crazy stuff right now. So um, as much as I want to skip over the whole demon stuff and Satan stuff, because it's pretty easy to skip over that, um, but I think we need to talk about it. I think it's something serious that I think will kind of have a little bit of a, um, a heaviness to it this morning. But I think it's something that we shouldn't necessarily skip over, even though it's difficult to talk about because it's mysterious and it's like, it's not this tangible thing where I can be like, yeah, that's Satan, that's not. It's very tangible, black and white. It's very, it's spiritual, right? We can't put our finger on it all the time. But here's some things that I want to talk about to kind of unpack it as to why he's being called Satan um, and why his family's like he's out of his mind. Um, but really what happens here is essentially it's about setting people free, right? Because the very beginning, what he does is he's assembling this team, and he calls them to go preach and to cast out what? Demons, right? So that's obviously a big thing in Jesus's mission there. And why it's such a big thing is because when you talk about demons, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, what we're talking about is a spiritual force that's causing damage, that's pulling people away from being set free. And what Jesus ultimately comes to do is to bring freedom, restoration. Shalom is one of the terms you hear in the Old Testament. It's called peace, right? Peace with ourselves, peace with others, and peace with God. There's this idea that Jesus wants to bring that life to people. And so when he says, I'm going to assemble this dream team to go out and cast out demons, what he's saying is, I want to set people free. I want them to experience life as it was intended to be, right? We all want that. And so the response here, though, is different, though. 
he gets called Satan for some reason. And they say it's demonic, right? Um, so we need to unpack that. But essentially what we have to understand is that evil is meant to rob us of joy, rob us of freedom, rob us of the way that God intended us to live. So the verse that I'm just going to go to, there's a lot of other verses that is just easy to remember, um, is John 10.10. 10. And what Jesus says is, he says, the thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He simplifies it. He boils it down. He's like, anybody that's about Satan and about evil and doing all these things, he's like, it's basically going to steal, kill, and destroy you as a person. And so that can happen in our relationships. So I'm just trying to make this very tangible when we talk about evil. We've been there before where someone's done evil to us, right? In relationships, when you've had a broken relationship, when someone's done something, said something that is very evil, destructive, um, some people will go so far as to label it, right? But I'm going to say it's evil, that if someone does something evil and destructive in a relationship to cause that brokenness, that goes against what God desires, right? God doesn't desire for us to be broken. Um, Carissa mentioned uh, a prayer request that just came out. Um, in Haiti right now, there's 17 missionaries that have been kidnapped. That's evil, right? I've been praying since last night, since I got that, that they would be set free, that whoever's causing this kind of destruction, division, anger, right, like pain, um, would see the error of their ways. Because we would all agree that that's evil. That anytime someone else is kidnapped at their, beyond their own will, right, like that's, that's just not right. And something in us just goes, that is broken, that is not okay. That's not the way God intended things to be. And so I want to invite you guys to be praying for that as well. But that's an example of how broken relationship exists in our world and how destructive that can be. Um, another way that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy is maybe your own dreams. Maybe things that you've had in your mind of things that you've wanted to do, your hopes. Um, another way is, you, is viewing it is your personal well-being. That maybe you've had that inner dialogue that's super destructive and evil, and you're like, that's not me. Like, what is that? Like, why do I... Th- think less of myself, and why do I talk down to myself and have these destructive voices in my, in my head that I keep telling myself that I can't do something, I'm not capable, I'm not worthy, or whatever it is. Those are all ways that the thief comes to do those three things, steal, kill, and destroy. And I think we could all agree that that exists at some level in our lives, if it's personally or relationally um, in our world, and it's undeniable, it exists. Um, but it's not the whole story. It's not everything, right? Like, that isn't the end of the story. There's so much more, and that's what Jesus is trying to do. So, when we talk about evil, when we talk about Satan, and when we talk about these things, I get very skeptical. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're like, does that really exist? Is that real, or is that just, like, people's selfishness talking? I was definitely skeptical for many years until I went to Haiti. Um, When I went to Haiti, I think it was like 10 years ago, for the first time, I'd seen actual demon possession, like where people are rolling on the ground. I'm so glad the kids aren't in here, but like full on, like this lady thought she was possessed by a snake demon or something and was literally rolling around, destroying herself. And we had to like basically just stop her from this. And, um, And I've seen how people would enter to a church building and then just start screaming and freaking out and like can't walk into the church building, right? 
Like, it gives me chills just, like, thinking back on these scenarios that we watched happen. And until then, like, until I'd been there and seen that, I was like, there isn't demonic stuff. That's just, like, people, that's, like, psychosis. That something else is going on. It's something that's messed up in people that is causing all of that, and the people have just attributed to that, to Satan. It's just a religious kind of thing. But when I saw that happen, and then now I've seen that lady who was rolling on the ground for hours now completely set free and in a church and has peace and talks about the peace that she has where she's just like, Jesus is the only thing in my life. Like, she just talks about God and what God has done to set her free. Like, it's the, it's the center of her universe, as it should be, right? And so she experiences, she knows, like, the contrast between darkness and the light the truth of really what God is trying to do to set us free, and then this, these demonic, evil spirits that exist in our world. And then the next question that happened, which Matt's been part of that, and some of you have been part of that, is when we come back from Haiti, we go, why don't we see that here? And then we begin to ask the question of like, maybe we do, we just don't attribute it to it. We just say that they've gone crazy, and we put them in, I don't know, insane asylums, whatever it is. Like, or the second part of it is we downplay everything and Satan wants us to think that everything is just okay. Just be okay with everything that's going on in our world and just be numb to it all. They're like That whole demonic thing, that just happens in Haiti or that just happens in other parts of the world and convince us that everything's fine and it's okay. And then we just leave, live this very mediocre life. If you want to read about this, you can pick up... Um, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, he talks about that over and over in all these different illustrations of ways that the Satan will try and make us think that everything's okay, you don't really need God that much, you just need him a little bit, just enough to make you happy, um, but he, he doesn't have to be the center of your universe, right? But as I begin to dig into this stuff, my skeptical side started to fade away because I started to see the very real contrast between the two things that exist. And so what Jesus is doing as he sets up this dream team of disciples where he's like, we're going to push back the darkness. You're going to go out and you're going to set people free. You get this awesome privilege of stepping into that. And that's why these guys, when he says he called them and they were just like, they weren't just zombies like, oh, let's go. They saw what had happened and they were like, wait, we get to be part of that? Like they got giddy about it. They were like, we get to be part of helping people set straight, like the mindset of what it looks like to view God in a very real way and know the difference between evil and what is good and what is truly going to help us thrive. Like they saw that, but his family doesn't see it, right? And others don't see it. Um, this conversation around Satan, evil, devil, whatever you want to describe it, um, can be pretty complicated. Um, especially when it comes to his family, especially when it comes to the religious leaders at that time. Um, but I think we can unpack it with a few verses and begin to see some things. I can't do it full justice in 20 minutes, but, um, but I think we can start to unpack some of the things, the truths that Jesus brings to bring light to this and how it can really help us, I think, distinguish the difference between good and evil. Um, and so I want to point to 1 John chapter 3. Um, he describes really clearly what it looks like to be um, wrapped up in the things of evil and the things of God. And, um, and this, this passage is, is pretty heavy. I'm going to warn you right now, but I'm going to unpack it here in a second. So let me read it, and then uh, we'll dig into it. 
Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. So first off, he recognizes that you can be led astray. You can be convinced that everything's fine and it's okay and just keep going about your way, right? Um, The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. I know that's pretty intense, but I'll explain in a second. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So again, like what I was talking about, I was like, Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, the destructive patterns that exist in our world. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who, who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So context, real quick. He's talking to believers. He's talking to a church gathering. And so these would have been people that are trying to discern, am I doing the right thing? Am I following God? Um, And he says, basically, it's doing the will of God that makes you a child of God. It's not a single prayer at an altar. It's not just like one thing. It's being committed and centering around Jesus and desiring his will in your life. And then he goes on and it says it has to do with following not only the rules, but then it's loving people. The way that you love people demonstrate whether or not you're part of this whole thing or not. And so he drops a pretty heavy line in there where he says, if you continue to sin, you're a child of the devil, right? So we've got to unpack that. Um, so if you've done something wrong, it doesn't make you the devil. I just clarify that because there's two things. So there's sins of omission and sins of commission. There's sins that we do willfully where we're like, I'm going to cause evil to this person right now and I don't even care, right? And then there's sins of commission where, um, of, sorry, of omission, the other way around, where you, you're just going about your life and you may do something wrong to somebody and it's not intentional. That's not what he's talking about. That doesn't make you the devil, right? If you're intentionally going out to harm people and do evil to people, then yeah, that's what he's trying to categorize believers into. He says, like, if you think you're a believer, but you're out intentionally doing evil, that's not okay. That's not what Jesus is about. That contradicts the message of Jesus. But then he says, but if you're out trying intentionally to live for Jesus, there's going to be parts where you're probably going to mess up. Um, That's not intentional. Um, That's not what he's talking about. Like, our salvation is secure. When you commit to following Jesus, there's nothing you can do to to like to break that connection, that relationship with him, other than saying willfully, I want nothing to do with you and I'm going to hurt people, right? So that's like, it makes it very distinct, like what he's talking about when we talk about evil, when we talk about Satan, the devil, um, the devil's work is the way that he describes it. Um, and that's what Jesus is pushing against. He says, let's be the kind of people who love. And that's why he ends it there with, nor does anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And it's centered around love for one another. And their brother and sister, your neighbor, whoever it is, it's the people around us. The way that we love one another is going to be the defining factor of whether or not we're committed to this mission or not. And so um, another way that I want to discern this is like understanding a healthy view of evil um, and seeing, trying to discern the difference between what is evil and what is not in our world um, is this this tool called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Um, and so I want to give you guys kind of a breakdown on it. I'm going to show you guys a little three-minute video that um, 
It was from a, a Nazarene theological um, college in um, Manchester. But basically, they just do a real quick breakdown on how this begins to help us discern what is good and evil, and how do we begin to, um, I think, have a, th- a robust theology that begins to help us understand how to live this out in a way that doesn't just make everything evil, right? Because that can be sometimes the Christian realm is like, everything's evil if it's not, you know, according to my ways or whatever. Um, or the devil doesn't exist and it's just everything's fine and happy and it's just Jesus, right? So we, we want to find somewhere like a, a healthy understanding in between. And this quadrilateral helps us understand that. So um, check out this video and then we'll talk about it in a second. Sometimes people ask, how do we use the Wesleyan quadrilateral to shape our faith in new contexts? Well, firstly, that absolutely means we have to ask the question, what on earth is the Wesleyan quadrilateral in the first place? And I'm not going to call it that again because I'll stumble over my words. I'll call it the Wesleyan quad, okay? So basically, the four things that make up the Wesleyan quad go like this. Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. These are understood as the bedrocks of Wesleyan theology. And in particular, it starts with scripture. So the the king or the queen of all of the ways Wesleyan thinks about everything is to say, what does scripture tell us about this? How do we use scripture? How does scripture inform our decision making? What might the Bible tell us or teach us or enable us to think through carefully? And so in any new context, one of the things we might say is, well, what does the Bible teach us? Are there things that we can look at or explore that would say the scripture says this? But then we don't just read the Bible. We read the Bible through particular focus or particular lens. And so we say, actually, what does reason do here? What do our minds, what does the best of learning help us understand in this setting? And so in a context setting, that might say, what do the demographics here tell us? What do sociologists say about this place? What does the environmentalist movement teach us about this setting? What might urban planning teach us about this setting? In other words, we use our reason, our mind's eye, to help us understand every context. And then it says tradition. Well, tradition kind of capital T is you know, well, what does that teach us about anywhere? What might the tradition of the church say about this kind of setting? So let's suppose it's rural. We dig deep and we say, what do the churches over time who are based in rural settings have to teach us about what we're doing now in rural settings? How can we draw on that for our learning? And then there's experience. Now, experience can play out in two different ways. The experience of the collective witness. What does the church have to teach us about this? And then our own personal experience also. What does our experience of God, our life experience, teach us about this? And we draw all of these things together to say, actually, this is pretty much a way of looking at the world that helps us be really good pastors, leaders, church people in any setting that we find ourselves. So we go back around and we say, scripture, reason, tradition, experience. How does that shape everything we do on a day-to-day basis to serve this particular setting that we find ourselves in? And then we find all kinds of creative and innovative answers to what we're doing in the here and the now. Innovative. Let's be innovative. I think it's a healthy way to begin to look at when we talk about evil and Satan and these kind of things is to go, what do we know about it? 
What does our intellect tell us about it, right? What does tradition tell us about it? And this is a great little Venn diagram to look at it and say, Scripture is obviously core. Like, we want Scripture to be centered to how we do things. Um, but then tradition, reason, experience, those all are going to inform how we begin to view what is good, what is evil. Um, in Haiti, it becomes very obvious where the evil exists. It's very, very contrasting. Um, in our culture, it's going to be a little harder. And that's why I think people, some churches, go full tilt and will label things as, no, that's Satan, that's evil, that's the devil. And it's like, I don't know. Maybe someone's just off track and they're not thinking clearly, right? Like, and so reason begins to help us discern these things and experience helps us understand like, okay, so maybe it's a medical condition. Maybe it's not Satan, right? Um, and helps us begin to get a fuller understanding of what's happening. Jesus' family jumped straight to conclusions that he's out of his mind, right? And I think part of that was also a family trying to protect um, their son, right? Um, and say like, yeah, the culture's not really accepting him in some ways, and he's starting to ruffle feathers. Maybe we should just remove him from this situation because we're going to think we're all crazy because we're connected to Jesus, right? So it's easier for them just to be like, he's out of his mind, right? And then you have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that are like, no, he's straight up Satan, right? And that's an easy way to basically slander somebody Call them names, make them look bad to make yourself look better, right? And we talked about that last week. We don't need to get all into the Pharisees and that whole thing if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, but they, they deliberately tried to do something that would discredit who Jesus is. But what we see is Jesus does something contrary, like he begins to live it out, and people are drawn to it, and they see the physical actions that he has um, and his abilities to truly heal and bring reconciliation to people, restoration to people, right? Last week we talked about the person, the guy's hand is completely restored that was crippled. What Jesus does, what he models, is this true example of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to exist here on earth. And the contrast is very obvious, but yet the Pharisees don't see it and they continue to call him names. Um, misinformation is kind of a big thing. I talked a little bit about last week with Facebook, right? We know about misinformation. Um, I heard some more stuff this week, which I thought I'd share because I think it ties in nicely. Um, when we talk about people deliberately fostering hate to create division, um, that's what you see the Pharisees doing. Um, this week, uh, as we heard about that whistleblower on Facebook, um, there's more information that came out, and um, I'm just going to read a little passage I read from an article that says, um, in the run-up to the 2020 election, which this has nothing to do with election, but um, the most highly contested in U.S. history, Facebook's most popular pages for Christian and black American content were being run by Eastern European troll farms. Troll farms. So the top 20 sites that the average American, which are Christian American, I would say, um, it says there were 150 million people that were going onto these sites, were reading and tracking with, were troll farms. People intentionally trying to be divisive, to drop in things that would divide our culture, divide our country, and try and create even more division. 
um, were troll farms. And it says, um, these pages were part of a larger network that collectively reached nearly half of all Americans. If you think about that, half of all Americans were reading something that was fake. And they were all getting fired up and angry at the other team, which isn't even the other team, which is troll farms, um, and getting fired up about it. Uh, and it says, according to an internal company report, which was part of that whole whistleblower thing that happened this week um, with Facebook. And it says, and it achieved that reach not through user choice, but primarily as a result of Facebook's own platform design and engagement-hungry algorithm, that their algorithm feeds division and hate and creates more of that within our country. That kind of angers me when I think about how divided we all feel as a country and how divided and angry people are towards each other and that Facebook fostered that to make more money, right? That's essentially what these Pharisees are doing. They're like, we can drop a, like basically some kind of slander, some kind of fake information that they clearly know is wrong, right? Because they've, they've witnessed the healings that have happened. They've witnessed what he said. But it affects them so much that they're like, let's just drop the worst insult we can, Satan, right? And it, it doesn't really end up working very well. But um, to call him Satan basically diminishes any kind of authority and where he's at. And so this divisive speech, like we see it today in our culture and it's no different in that culture. And that's what they were trying to do. And so discerning like name calling versus really what's Satan and what's evil is something we need to do as the church. It's something we need to be able to, to understand and be able to see. Um, Jesus dispels this misinformation through his actions, right? Um, his speech, like the way that he talked, the way that he, or the way that he spoke, and the things that he was talking about resonated with so many people that it says there that people were coming from other cities swarming to try and hear more of it. Because when we hear truth and when we hear that beautiful message, we go, I want more of that. And so what I want to point out is that his ability to shine in the midst of that darkness um, had some serious power and some serious influence. And his family didn't understand it. His disciples didn't understand it at times. Um, the Pharisees certainly didn't understand it. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, Maybe there's times where we don't understand it, right? And maybe we need to sit at, a, at some point and begin to ask ourselves, like, what are the voices that we're listening to? Do we listen to Jesus? Do we listen to what he's calling, inviting us into of restoration, new life, being participants in what it means to bring restoration and new life to other people? Um, I think is central, right? All these other voices that were in his life either kind of understood it or were trying to um, trying to grapple with what does it really mean, right? Even his own family. And, and so what I want to do is just kind of show you guys a few verses to close here that I think capture this heart that Jesus brings and invites us into of unity, um, where he says in John 16, verse 33, if you want to read, I would just encourage you to read this week, John 14, 15, and 16. It's just like this like upper room meal conversation that Jesus has with his disciples where he's like, this is everything that's most important. And here's a couple of lines from it, okay? So I encourage you to read all of it, but here's a couple of highlights. He says, I have told you these things, everything I've been talking about, so that you, in, so that in me, you may have peace, okay? So we can stop there and just be like, that's good. So that in you, you may have peace. 
that you experience this kind of peace, not the chaos that Satan brings. In this world, you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. St. Francis of Sales says, the devil does, does his utmost to banish peace from one's heart because he knows that God abides in peace and it is in peace that he accomplishes great things. God wants us to experience that peace. And so anytime you're in a place where you feel that like anxious, like I'm frustrated with what's happening, that's not of God. What God wants to do is bring that peace, bring that sense of like, Yes, things are right. That shalom, that peace that he talks about. And so, and it goes on in, in, um, in chapter 17, in John 17. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but essentially he says, I want you to have the same unity that I have with the Father. I want you to have with each other. And when I read that, it broke my heart to begin to think of like how divided we are, even inside the church at times. That like the invitation that Jesus had as he sat with his disciples was be unified. Like, come together and love one another. Don't be of this evil, destructive, divisive thing that, that Satan wants to do in this world. Like, be part of this good where you get to, like, love people. You get to use your words to bring unity to people, to bring encouragement, to bring new life. And he's like, just recognize that God loves you that much. The same way that Jesus was, like, there exemplifying it. He says, he loves you that much that he wants to go and do that, not only in you, but to towards others, towards the people that we encounter during the week that might be challenging. Um, and so I just want to close with um, just a five-minute time where you, we can have our greeting, and if you need to sit and reflect on this, you're welcome to stay in your seat. Um, but how do you begin to press in and listen, or maybe how will you? So if you don't already, that's fine. It's okay. We're all on this journey of growing and learning together. But how do you begin to pause and press into the voice of Jesus? reflect on who, what he's calling us to, what he's inviting us to. Um, because I think if we don't ever pause, all these loud voices, Facebook, Instagram, social media, throughout the week, even people that we hang out with, will be louder than the voice of Jesus. That we have to have time to sit and say, oh, what are you telling me, Jesus? And then we'll have that peace. And then we operate out of peace rather than anxious. We gotta fight. We gotta like prove our our point to whoever it is on Facebook, whatever it is, um, it's about peace. And then we begin to live out of that and we begin to interact in that way. So let me pray and then, um, yeah, just take some time, grab some coffee and, uh, and share that with somebody that you haven't spoken to in a while. So Lord, uh, give us this peace that, that unifies us and begins to um, transform this world that we live in. Um, we want to be such a, uh, a clear reflection of your heart we know that there's so many other voices that get in the way. And so help us to sit at your feet, be unified not only with you, but then with each other, Lord. Um, we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you need to sit and reflect for a little bit, um, that'll be playing. But if not, uh, so just go grab some coffee in the back and, um, and share with somebody how you're going to spend some time reflecting or how you already reflect on Jesus. Jesus.